Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my return guest, Matt McDarby. He's a multiple author. He is a, an expert in asking the awkward, gnarly, shitty, horrible questions that managers and leaders really don't want you to ask. And he's written books on why managers don't create the right kind of environment to hire the, uh, the right people, to create the conditions so salespeople can thrive. And today we're going to be looking at something that I feel very close to my heart. How do you create followership? How do you create energy in your sales organizations so that your people can really perform to their best, that they want to come to work and do their best work? What is it that great leaders do that average and weak leaders don't? How do you create sustainable results without compromising your values and ethics. We're going to be looking at the seven deadly sins in management, but we're also going to be looking at the seven virtues of great management. We're going to be looking at how, what kind of message you send out to your people, your partners, your customers, and really trying to understand how do you produce great results by understanding how to get the best out of your people. It's called, uh, he's written a book called The Divine Comedy of Sales, which just for the title, you really ought to go out and get. We're going to explore why he chose to uh, write this book now. I'm so pleased to have you back, Matt, because the last session that we did was outstanding. So first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be back. Um, uh, It's rare for me to be invited back. (laughs) (laughs) I I know that feeling. Anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> would you mind giving the audience just a quick run through like 60 seconds of your history sure. first off sure sure um so in the current uh, mode for the last decade or so i have focused strictly on the development of sales leaders coaching and advisory support for everybody from frontline managers up to chief sales officers and i do that mostly from middle market to large enterprises i've chosen to do that because I think the sales manager has the pivotal role, the most difficult role, the most crucial and important role in a sales organization. And if you want to affect the performance of a sales team, whether it's a small one or a large one, you've got to spend your time and effort first on the effectiveness of those sales managers. Why do I know that? Because prior to starting this company, I worked in the traditional sales training business. I worked for Huthwaite in in the U.S., Neil Rackham, Spin Selling. And um, I sold for them and I was their VP of Enterprise Sales in my last year and a half or so. And the one thing that I concluded was that, you know, we were delivering the same methods, same content and tools delivered by the same people, yet one organization would get great results, another would get so-so results, another would get sort of spotty and, you know. And the thing that was different between the organizations that got consistently great results and those that got sort of a sugar rush or of kind of a limited impact was those sales managers. How well did they coach? How well did they reinforce and integrate? So I thought, shoot, I could build a business around that. And at the time, there really wasn't anybody focused on developing the whole manager. So I built my business around that. And uh, lo and behold, 11 years later, it's, it's worked out. (laughs) Excellent. Okay. So um, if you're listening to this now, there is good cause to pay great attention and take notes because Matt is absolutely on the money. The training industry, frankly, is a cabal um, and most training does not work. Sales training, you can teach them technique and most of these systems, Sandler, Hathaway, Richardson, Miller-Hyman, they're all great systems. The problem is that there is next to no follow through. There's next to no implementation uh, in terms of reinforcement. Most training is forgotten and most training is not reinforced. And the managers are absolutely pivotal. Managers are absolutely the most pivotal people in the organization. They are also the most undertrained people in the organization. Yeah. One of my clients, a company called Notion, has uh, devised a methodology of developing ongoing concurrent training for hundreds or thousands of managers concurrently that delivers lasting change because it's reinforced. And what I'm fascinated by is why L&D departments and sales leaders 
think it's absolutely okay to put people on a rinse and repeat cycle and and they throw them into one system after another. I came across one organization recently. They're on their fourth methodology in five years and the needle has not moved. So let's tackle that issue first of all. If you're speaking to the leaders within a vendor organization, what would you say to them about training their salespeople first off? You know, there's a saying we used to, we used to tell customers this going back to my Huffweight days. It's not always the what, it is always about the how. Meaning it doesn't matter what methodology or content you choose as much as how you implement. The trouble is they give a lot more thought to, are we a, you know, are we a strategic selling shop? Are we a spin shop? Are we a Sandler? What are we? And don't give much thought to how are we actually going to install this properly and sustain and coach. And in so doing, badly underestimate how just how much work is required to sustain and integrate those, those methods. So um, you know the, the people that most that understand this best are the sales enablers and in, in-house sales effectiveness people. But typically they don't, many of them don't really have a seat at the table when the strategy is being set when we're making decisions like, well, what are the methods that we need to encourage in our sales organization to achieve the business outcome that we want, right? They're, court, they're sort of you know, delivered that news after the fact. And because they don't always have a seat at the table, they can't properly influence the implementation plan. So leadership comes at them with, uh, you know, we've got to implement this new approach by a certain time because we need to, you know, a better result. And they're like, okay, but we're already kind of, you know, the horse is out of the barn and we're, and he's running off in some direction. We don't have any sense of where he's headed. This is something that really troubles me. I, I recently ran a couple of round tables with L&D, with sales leaders, with trainers, with users and or sufferers of training and various other and uh, enablement people. And what I'm clear about is none of them are coming with the same agenda. They right. all come with a completely different agenda. L&D seems to be fixated on retention. The sales leaders say, oh, we've got to train our people, but it's mainly check-in-the-box exercise. The trainers are turning up just to take the money and run. Yeah. And uh, you've got the enablers who really don't have any influence. And you know, the, one of the, my CEOs, he was head of L&D at a very large manufacturer of printers and all that kind of stuff. And he, uh, one day uh, a sales leader came to him and said, you know, Ben, what we need is some uh, hunter training. I mean, what on God's earth does that mean? And they're all coming at it from different angles. And the people who are never involved are customers. So yeah. my question is this, why is it that the customer seems to be this forgotten afterthought in all this process? I have, Marcus, in short, I have absolutely no idea. We've been talking about customer focus for, you know, decades now. And and it doesn't seem to, for whatever reason, doesn't seem to to get through. You know, the best sales processes, the most effective methods are all, we're all sort of derived customer, you know, from the customer working backward, right? Yeah. Um, When we want customer to do X, what are the behaviors that lead to that outcome. Let's analyze that and let's let's you know let's teach let's teach those behaviors because we know they lead to the outcome. You know, putting it in context for the work that I do every day, because I'm talking with again frontline managers up to chief sales officers and and people in between. And um, I think people know it intuitively, the right way to go about determining our strategy, the right way to go about identifying the tactics that will work, the plays that will run. The best way to identify those is to start with the customer backward. But for some reason, it's like, it's just one of those, oh, yeah, that's, we should do that kind of things. And I think it's just easier to start from where, you know, from where you are. If you're a a sales leader, an enablement leader, learning development, whomever, it's just a lot easier. It's faster. It's more efficient. uh, And there's a lot less friction when... You don't have to worry about interviewing a pesky customer or, or asking them for access because and because God forbid they might say no. I don't <laughs> have that conversation. There's not a lot of value in it for me. But it's just I think it's just people get into this habit of doing what's what's expedient, what's e- what's quick and easy. 
I think you've touched on a really important point, which is that we've optimized for efficiency, not for effectiveness. Sure. So certainly in the work that I'm doing with all of my clients, we're really focused on um, trying to understand that customer journey and understand the journey that got them to where they are and where they want to go and then working backwards from there. So my question is this, how important is it to uh, be able to understand the manager's journey? Because my, my, my experience is that typically the route to management is we tap you on the shoulder and tell you, say, Matt, we've just fired your idiot boss. You're now the idiot boss. Off you go. And we hire people who are great producers, but we don't equip them. There is no management apprenticeship. Even if there were a management apprenticeship, it's not built on the values. It's not built on the attitudes and beliefs and uh, the virtues. And so I'm really curious how you came to the conclusion that you had to focus on these seven virtues. Yeah. Well, like to your point, there's no, there are very few organizations that invest in equipping new managers with the skills required to lead. Now, there are a number of things that a really effective seller will already know how to do. He or she will know how to influence people, right? Why? Because they sell. So that, you know, they're, they're already accustomed to uh, getting people to take action that they otherwise might not take. And a lot of the same skills that are required for selling apply to coaching internally, right? Getting people to draw new and different conclusions, getting them to, to uh, commit to taking new and different action. How do we do that? We ask them questions or we're pulling them in the direction. And that's a really critical skill skill set for coaching. But coaching happens in the context of the environment that you create. And I think that's a big miss for sales leadership training programs. And really no one's talking about it. That's why I wrote the book that I think it's assumed that people that get promoted into sales management roles will kind of figure it out in terms of the environment that they should create to get the best effort and the most positive energy and the most sustainable kind of you know, culture. Uh, but it's not intuitive, um, it, particularly if you've grown up in a, and I won't mention companies by name, but some, you know, a big yeah, enterprise. Go on, you know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, you know, let's call it like, let's say you grew up in an Oracle, for example, right? That has a reputation for being somewhat rigid in how people are brought up in the sales organization. And they've got a very, very specific and very highly structured way of bringing people up in the business. I don't think they're having conversations there about virtues, uh, I, I suspect. And it's not a knock on Oracle. I, you could fill in the name and there's probably, you know, a thousand other successful organizations where they're not necessarily thinking to equip leaders with the skills to lead. Coming around to the uh, simple answer to your question is, if I'm a new leader, and I have a sense of what kind of environment that I want to create where I'm building real followership. And I'm, I think that's a word. Um, it's not a, it's now. Today it is. Yeah, it is now. <laughs> I really, really want to build that followership. And I want to be confident that my people are giving their absolute best when I'm not there. Then I have to be conscious of the environment that I create. And it's got to be a high trust environment. It's got to be an environment in which sellers feel valued and they know that I have their best interests at heart. This is really key. So this is so close to my heart. One of the critical core messages of everything that I do now is around buyer safety. But um, I've realized that you cannot deliver buyer safety without creating seller safety. And that seems to be something that has been woefully forgotten in so many organizations. And I know I harp on about it a lot. So for those of you who are about to sigh, it, very often it's down to the speculators and the gamblers and the money behind the organization that permeate the organization. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up with is this environment. In fact, when uh, we just before we jumped onto this call, I was starting to write another post on LinkedIn uh, for a rant because uh, I was speaking to uh, a client of mine uh, from years ago who was being put under pressure yet again uh, at the end of uh, the quarter to steal pipeline from next quarter. Mm -hmm. And there just makes no sense. We do not work for the investors. They take a risk. You work for the customer. The problem is that they pay your bill. The investor doesn't. 
The customer right. pays your bills. They pay your salary. They put the roof over your head. And so the idiocy of stealing pipeline and putting a customer under pressure, undermining the trust that you've built, trying to force a deal over the line prematurely uh, in order that some speculator can make some fictional notional number in order to fiddle a valuation in a privately held company makes no sense to me. And yeah. I just am baffled by it. Well, I mean, you just sort you just alluded to it. Like, what is the impact of that, all that behavior on the customer? Yeah. And I, you know, buyer safety is an interesting way of describing it. That's not a that's not an environment where buyers feel like their their best interests are front and center, that they're that they're protected. And I was, I, you know, use you use the word trust. I use the word trust as well. I'll come back to trust in a in a moment. But as a buyer, I need to know that you have my best interests at heart. And when you come to me at the end of the quarter with the red hot deal, and it's clearly because you have a number to hit, then I know what I, I, you don't even have to tell me what message you're trying to send. I know. And the message is, I really don't care about your timeline, Mr. Customer, or what you're trying to achieve. None of that, all that's out the window at this point, because I have an agenda, I've got a number to hit, and you're, the next person on the path to getting me to the number. And that's it. The, the irony of this particular conversation was it was a 250 grand deal. And by waiting, she landed 680. Two weeks as right. all. And right. they were willing to give away, what, 430,000 pounds worth of additional revenue in order to make some fictional notional number that meant nothing yeah. in the grand scheme yeah. of things. Yeah, lunacy. It doesn't make any sense. But I mean, it happens. It happens... At the end of the quarter, at the end of the month, it's, you know, some organizations are so accelerated. It's end of the month now. And, but I think we have to like to get back to the virtues and, and what we were talking about a few minutes ago. It's if we take a step back from that, we recognize that's clearly not the way customers want to be treated. And what kind of environment have we created where that, that behavior is acceptable? It's not, it's clear, it's not the kind of environment we want. What it does, it creates an environment that fosters burnout. It fosters churn. It fosters turnover within the sales team. At the yeah. moment, we are suffering from a massive skill shortage. Why would you do that? Why would you create an environment where essentially your sales floor is littered with the corpses of perfectly capable people who could do well, but you burn out, burn them out? Well, let's dig yeah. into, first of all, the seven deadly sins. Absolutely. Let's move yeah. into the virtues because then... Um, yeah. Let's keep them waiting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about the fun, the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the seven deadly sins, and this is I talked about this in the intro as I was writing the book. I was like, I know there's a framework, there's something here. And I remembered, right? And I had to go back to my early school days. And uh and and the acronym PISOGGLE, pride, envy, ire, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust, the seven deadly sins. Pisagel, P-E-I-S-A-G-L. And, um, you know, Marcus, what you're talking about is, as a leader, why would I create this sort of environment where we're churning through people and where we deliver the message that we really don't care about our customers? You know, we don't have our best customers' best interests at heart. We also don't have our sellers' best interests at heart. We just have a number to hit, right? Think about pride envy, ire, sloth, avarice, right? There's a little bit of, I, I can, you know, avarice, there's some gluttony, lust for immediate results. I don't, I talk about lust not in the carnal sense in this book, but lust for immediate results. And what does that create in a sales organization? But I think it's also pridefulness, right? We're going to get to this number, damn it. I'm the leader. We're going to hit the number and throw all the rules of, of good behavior out the window it's all about did we deliver a number or not, right? Which again has very little to do with the people we serve or the mission of the business or any of that. It has to do with we have a, you know, we have to do this because if we don't, we're, you know, we're uh, we're not as good as we think we are. Let's go into the seven virtues then. Help me work through those. Sure, sure. All right. So again, the seven virtues oppose the seven deadly sins. So we have humility. Goodwill, patience, diligence, generosity, 
self-control, and detachment. When you say them, they are so excruciatingly, painfully obvious. Right. And I, I, I suspect they're sat under people's noses, and they're just so obvious that they overlook them. Yeah. So Again, let, let's take them one by one. Humility. Sure. Because one of the things I see an awful lot of is hero managers. Let me yeah. show you how a real man closes, son. And you know, you do this, do that. And they, they, you know, leaders and managers, and you know, having this sense of entitlement. So let's dig into humility. What does that look like in practice? Uh, you know, one of the first lessons I think we were talking earlier about the sales, the, you know, the seller who was really affected and gets promoted into the sales manager's seat. One of the first lessons that you that one learns, whether you want to or not, is that it isn't about you anymore, right? If you're leading a team, your orientation has to change. As an individual contributor, it was all about me and how do I prepare and how do I execute and how am I doing against my number? When you lead a team, it's reversed, right? It's about literally about the development and results that other people produce. So I think that humility, being able to reflect that to a team of sellers, whether they are brand new or whether they're your former colleagues, you've just been promoted past or some mix of the two, it's really important to demonstrate humility and help them to realize that, hey, look, I'm not so uh, thrilled with myself that I'm going to focus on my own accomplishments here. This is about you and what you are going to achieve. And I am part of your supporting cast, right? So I know what I know. But it's only relevant if I can help you to achieve something great. Well, one of my favorite examples are, uh, to ensure this is the way Tom Shodorf used to run his team at Splunk. And a manager was not allowed to go on any of the jollies or the president's clubs or trips or awards uh, ceremonies unless at least 80% of his team was hitting or exceeding quota. Yeah. And it's a real wake-up call because when you realize that your job is to help other people succeed and you are no longer important, it's your right. job to uh, help other people become wildly successful and meet their full potential. And so this then speaks to how people are compensated, how they're recruited, how they're measured. Um, so uh, again, we, let, let's explore that just for a moment. In terms of the measurements that managers are have inflicted or imposed upon them, what would you suggest that a leader uh, does in order to modify the way they measure and compensate managers to drive humility, goodwill, patience, and so on? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, you have to be, and this does tie back to something we talked about earlier, which is um, when we're setting our strategy and we define a, a clear vision of success, hopefully. And by the way, I've seen companies that they say they have a strategy and you ask them what specifically you're trying to achieve and they look at you in stunned silence. <laughs> like, well, no, well, how do you not have that? Uh, why is this so hard to answer? But if you if you are clear about that business outcome you're trying to achieve as an organization and working backward and thinking about the customer, like we talked about earlier, like what is it going to take? What do we have to do out in the field in order to achieve that outcome? How do we need to behave? How do our customers need to perceive us in order for them to be moved to take us up on all of these offers we have in the marketplace, right? Um, if you do that, then uh, you kind of back into a clear vision of how, like what are the behaviors specifically that we want our sellers to demonstrate in the field. And then there's a clear recipe there. So if that is, and for example, right, we want our sellers to be really thoughtful about seeking to understand what our customers want to achieve and then understanding what problems they're having, achieving those business results and how our solutions address those problems. And that's really the way we want our sellers orienting themselves and the way they plan and execute sales calls. If that's ultimately what the recipe looks like, then that's a pretty clear set of things that a manager needs to be measured on. That manager needs to conduct regular planning sessions, for example, with sellers, right? Where the objective is to identify, you know, really, really clear commitments that we want to gain from customers that are appropriate and that kind of help customers to move along in their journey. 
And so there's, it's actually quite simple to come up with measurable, uh, you know, metrics or key performance indicators or objectives and key results, whatever we want to call them. If we start with a clear vision of success and think about what do we need to do to move our, help our customers come to the right conclusions and commit to taking the actions that we want. And that's the part we were talking about the what and the how earlier, right? Yeah. That's it's the how. How will we go about isolating the behavior? How will we go about planning and executing? How will we go about coaching? That I think that gets sort of left out of the discussion. And ultimately, why it's difficult for us to come up with, you know, it's difficult for organizations to join up those key metrics and how they approach enablement. It's, it's, it's as if they're sort of living separate lives. Really interesting. Okay. So let's dig into goodwill. Yeah. Look, that's, um, it, it, I reference in the book at, a, at one key point here, the, um, if you're familiar with Green and Meister's work, the, the trust equation. Yeah. Right. And Charlie's one of my mentors. I'm delighted to say. Say again. Charlie Green's one of my mentors. I'm delighted. Yeah, to brilliant work. I mean, just uh, absolutely, uh, and so so simple in its construct. But goodwill is is fairly straightforward. I think I I want to reflect to my sellers that I will their good. I want them to achieve. I I also reflect the same attitude toward our customers and partners. You know, as a leader. I can absolutely reflect the opposite, that it's about my good, it's about my results, it's about what I want to achieve. Yeah. Um, and that definitely sort of plays out in how I interact with all of those different constituents. So goodwill is just, I, I will the good of the other. The other is my team, my customers, my partners, everybody but me. So for those of you not familiar with the trust equation, trust equals credibility plus reliability, plus intimacy over self-orientation. And what Charlie Green says is that the most important factor there is intimacy. It's letting people in. It's enabling people to let you in. Uh, it's that, pr- that closeness, that affinity with their objectives, their outcomes. But you notice it's over low self or over self-orientation and the lower your self-orientation the higher the level of trust and what you do is you drive discretionary effort and that's really incredible because one of the things that I, I look back at my career and the bosses that I had that were really low on their own self-orientation and created that kind of intimacy where it was easy for me to tell them how I felt where I felt I had a voice and I mattered to them, I would go to the ends of the earth for, and nothing they asked me to do was too much. The ones who didn't have either of those in spades, I would struggle. And in fact, what's really interesting is when you look at the level of employee engagement now, they're at an all-time low. In the UK, we are down to 9%. Highly engaged employees. In Europe, it's 14%. Somehow, Gallup have managed to say that in the US, it's around 35%. I have to question that because I'm not really seeing any evidence of it. But the 9%, I absolutely am. Okay, so patience. Let's deal with that one. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, look, it's in so many corners of professional sales, the, uh, the pace at which decisions get made, the pace at which change comes, the pace at which the pace at which trust is built, right? Or put another way, the pace at which customers give us their trust. We only have so much control over that and it takes time to build the sort of trust that we want both externally and internally. Right? Just because I have a member of my team, I, I brought him or her on We've set a goal and we told them that, you know, our average sales cycle is six months, nine months, maybe longer. But then we start, you know, they come aboard and after three months, we're like, you know, we're tapping our watch looking for results. Patience would lead to the opposite behavior would be, look, let's focus on helping you to develop in an appropriate way. Given the timeline that it takes our customers to make decisions, given what it takes to build strong relationships with clients. 
I'm going to be patient with you as you execute out in the field. And how do I demonstrate that? I don't, I don't push you for results in an unrealistic sort of way. I don't, you know, uh, an artificial timeline and deadline for, for things that you couldn't possibly accomplish. Patience also means that's kind of the, in the time sense. It also means I'm patient with you as you make mistakes. I expect you to, especially in the early going. I encourage you. I I want you to make mistakes. Yeah, please do. I would say that to people that were new in my, you know, in my uh, interim leadership and in my full-time leadership roles. It's like, please don't worry about making mistakes. Be professional, but I want you to go out and screw up and say things the wrong way because those are the lessons that stick, you know, and I'll be there to help you and I'll be patient with you, right? And the message there again is, I understand. I understand what you're going through. I understand how long this will take. I'm not perfect either. And I'm going to be patient with you as you learn. And what do do they end up reflecting to everyone else, right? The very same thing. And that's the thing about these virtues is that it's sort of the, you know, the ripple on the water effect, right? I can, I can demonstrate patience to a seller and have a reasonable expectation that he or she is likely going to take that aboard and be like, you know what, I have to, I'm being treated in a certain way. My sales support people who maybe make mistakes, maybe I should reflect that same kind of patience. My customers who make mistakes or who ghost me or go quiet for a month instead of hammering them and, and doing things that would uh, you know, give them, a, indicate that I don't care about their timeline anymore. I'm going to stop and think about that. And that's the impact of patience in, on a sales team. But I don't know if you're familiar with Project Oxygen from Google, um, and it, it's certainly worth looking up if you're listening. The number one characteristic of great managers that Project Oxygen identified was that their team would recommend joining the team to people they cared about. And what you're describing is uh, the kind of manager who would attract people to the team. They will have a waiting list of people queuing up to join them. And one of the most important things that I'm, I'm focused on, I believe, is creating the environment for becoming a destination employer, an employer that people will give their right arm, arm to be involved with and to be on a team that people will queue. In fact, I was speaking to uh, someone earlier today because I was making an introduction to another friend of mine. And interestingly enough, she said that um, the company that I mentioned was on her three-year list. And I said, right, well, look, he's a friend of mine. Let me make the introduction today. And yeah. I brought that timeline forward by three years for her. Wow. It's the kind of company that she wants to work with. It's, it's got a mission and a purpose. Their objective is to plant a million trees a day. What a fabulous, fabulous yeah. outcome. And yeah. um, so, you know, for, for her, um, that was a conversation she was having with her kids only over the weekend. Now, Bye. that kind of environment, that appeal, you know, where people want to come because it's a beautiful mission. The, the place is great. The people are great. The, the, the objective of what you do is fabulous. But again, it can only happen if you have the right kind of managers. It's right. awesome, Chris. Right. Yeah. You know, okay. it's, it's a good example, Marcus, really quickly. The, I know companies that, that have a great mission, at least in, they have the words, right? Yeah. And we've got, this is what we want to achieve. And they say things like, we want to be, uh, you know, a, a top employer. We want to be recognized. We want to be on this list or that for most desirable company. But the behavior, particular yeah. people in leadership roles doesn't line up. So it's one thing to aspire to be that, you know, that great employer of record or the, you know, the most desirable employer. But you've got to, the point here is you've got to pay close attention to these virtues. Are they at, are they actively at work in your environment or not? If they're not, you're going to have a very difficult time convincing people that you are a place to stay. And that's the point. You can attract them, but can you keep them? Right. Um, and so that brings us to the next question around generosity. How, sure. how what, what does generosity look like when you are a manager? Generosity, I mean, it's, it pertains to a couple of things. First, certainly in terms of rewards. I mean, we want to be generous with our people when uh, and reward them for the right behavior. But I actually spend more time on the book on the idea of being generous with one's time. 
because being stingy with your time as a leader, when your people reach out and they need help, and I don't mean the needy ones who have, you know, who are asking you the same question a thousand times over and over and over and over again. I mean, your people who need you to invest in their development and in their support, who need you to set clear expectations, who need you to, to be responsive, that if you aren't, and again, it's sometimes it's easy to look at the flip side of this, like to be, to withhold your time from them would be malpractice. Yeah. To be generous with your time sends a different message, which is the, I, my most important, most valuable asset, my time is something I am making available to you. Now I'm going to be smart about it and we're going to you know, kind of organize ourselves so that I can give you as much of my time, particularly for really valuable activities like coaching and planning together and, and things like that, that we'll identify together. But if I don't make that time and I'm not responsive to you, then I shouldn't expect that, um, that you would feel valued here. A, a watershed moment in my career was a conversation I had with a wonderful man uh, called Ian Dodds. Ian was involved in HR back in the 1970s all the way through to the early 2000s. And he turned around every failing factory in ICL for 30 years. And he taught me one thing which was so important, and I built it into everything that I do around management which is you have to manage inclusively. And that's another part of generosity. It's the generosity of being able, willing to listen, to hear yes. somebody else. And Ian, if you're listening, and I know you do listen all the time, thank you so much. Because it's been absolutely instructive. It's been uh, pivotal to my development. My friend, Laura Janusik, says that listening is the transfer of meaning. And that, I think, is really important as well. You need to be able to give people a voice and let them be heard. And that generosity is really important. And if you're not patient and you're not generous like that, then people will very quickly see that you're self-serving. And what he did was amazing. I mean, these were factories that had uh, cells of the Communist Party. And he was working with those people. Um, and um, there was a racial tension and there were, there were all sorts of stuff. And he brought these people together and they worked collectively as a unit working towards common purpose. And that only comes if you are generous as a leader and as a manager. Right, right. And you're offering stories from your own experience. In the book, I offer for each of the virtues, by the way, there's a story, a quick story where I don't name names about the sin in real life. But stories about virtuous leaders and and how this really plays out, right? In a real world sense, this is what it looks like when, right? And the generosity story is about something that I experienced myself. I had a leader who, for whatever reason, was simply not responsive. And the message that I received and my colleagues received was, she doesn't care about us at a most basic level. She cares about something else. In that environment, it was self-preservation. It was a highly political, kind of politically charged uh, environment. And it was clear to us that she was she was going to focus her time on kind of preserving her own legacy in the organization and what we wanted to work on and what our, you know, what we were asking about, where we needed help, just didn't matter. And uh, again, for those of you who are in the investment community, I want you to listen to these points in particular. Generous and patient capital is really important as well. If you have generous and patient capital, it will send the message through the leadership levels, through to management, and then out into the field. Because the people who are touching your customers are the ones who are then going to be projecting out that that's the kind of environment we create. We we care. And that makes all the difference because customers like to work with companies like that. They hate working with companies where every time they're just looking at you as a mark. You're a $25,000 commission to me. That's not going to engender any form of trust or long-term desire to work with you. Right, right. Okay, so let's deal with self-control. You know, as sellers, some of us have have pretty big egos, and we like to kind of stoke that with all the you know the goods and the and the good stuff, uh, and we want to reward ourselves. And nothing says I am really oriented to myself than than being overindulgent, right? Self control in this sense is about 
you know, I may have desires, I may have things that I need, I may have things that are just important to me, and I am going to temper them. I'm going to gauge those, and I'm going to be very careful about how I indulge my needs as a leader when I'm with my team, when I'm with customers. There's a very quick story I tell about a leader that I once knew that I worked with who was, uh, we'll just say, very self-indulgent in a setting where it was an extravagant dinner and expensive wine and desserts. And in a matter of an hour or two, managed to give one of our most important clients the impression that this is a guy that's just, he's so self-indulgent. We don't even know if we can, if he knew we were even there at the table, right? (laughs) And why is that? Because he wasn't able to sort of control his need, not only to eat what he wanted, but to demonstrate to everybody at the table that he was the smartest about wine and the most refined and he needed to be. So, so there's kind of different aspects of self-control that he did not demonstrate there, right? Not overindulging and being able to hold back the, the need to demonstrate to everybody that, you know, he was, he was the guy, right? He had the knowledge. He was the, the most tuned in to what was going on at the meal. The important message that that customer received was, this is somebody who really is, he's always going to, if given the chance, he's going to choose to suit his own desires before ours. Never asked what wine we wanted, never asked what, right? So it's a, it's a simple example, but real. I was working with one of my reps yesterday and he won't mind because he takes constructive criticism incredibly well, but he does tend to be very self-indulgent because he wants, I don't think he does it out of malice or any ill will, but he needs to serve his own needs to demonstrate how knowledgeable he is. And it's costing a fortune to the business. Now he's brilliant. And so just reining that in, And then flipping it so that instead of serving himself, he's focused on serving the customer. And the moment he can flip that switch, we're going to start seeing millions being generated from him. But at the moment, he's costing us millions. But again, it takes enormous patience not to get angry when you see that pattern of behavior repeated. So that's where detachment comes in. Because I think one of the things that I learned in my time Uh, studying the whole science of selling is there is this model called the drama triangle, which describes every messed up, dysfunctional, dissatisfying relationship you can or will ever have. And you have three points of the triangle, which is on its unstable point, a victim, a persecutor, and a rescuer. And that I, I describe as being above the line. It's all about attachment, attachment to how people perceive you, attachment to the outcome attachment to what's going to go into your pocket in terms of commission. But the flip side of that, the virtuous side is called the winner's triangle, where you are vulnerable, where you're nurturing and empathic, where you're assertive instead of being aggressive. And what's really amazing is the minute you flip the switch and you operate out of that winner's triangle, you never get sucked into a psychological game. You never get into a fight with anybody else because there's nowhere for them to hit you. My favorite quote from Bruce Lee was after he was asked, how do you avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And that's where the somewhere else is, the winner's time. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great quote. Yeah, and, and you know what you're talking about is an environment where there's limited friction internally. And, and you know, the detachment, the sense that I apply detachment Um, in that chapter of the book is let's be detached from the need from immediate results all the time. And the story of the leader who is like, we've got to act with urgency all the time. And it's like, yes, urgency is important, but not when we're acting with urgency at the expense of the environment that we're trying to create. And not when urgency comes at the expense of being patient with one another and not when urgency comes with, a clear message to the other that is, I don't care about the timeline here. I don't care about how long it will take for you to achieve X. I need it now. And detachment in this sense is it's the, you know, it's the opposite of the ready fire aim kind of sales culture that we <laughs> many of us have worked in, right? It's, it's, let's be thoughtful. It's ready, aim, fire, and let's do a lot of it. 
but let's be detached from needing an immediate result all the time. Because the fact is, we are going to have to be patient with our customers sometimes. And as leaders, we will have to be patient with our sellers as they go out and execute in the field. Because let's face it, a lot of what we do, trust building, creating value for customers takes time. It can't be done at the drop of a hat. So that's how detachment plays out. In the book, you talk about purposeful urgency. Yes. Can you just um, elaborate on that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just that. It's let's be clear about what we're trying to achieve and move with as much urgency as possible to achieve that outcome. Let's go about it in the right way. That's what I mean by being purposeful versus unpurposeful urgency or the ready, fire, aim, which is let's just be active. Let's just be doing all the time and not really think about whether the actions we're taking are going to lead to the outcome we want. Let's just be active. That's the difference. Purposeful urgency is about being willing to even slow yourself down to get the outcome. We used to say back in Huffway, you know, we're going to slow down to speed up. We want to be deliberate about the questions we're asking and how we're approaching our customers so that we can get a commitment for something really important as soon as possible. So we're moving with purposeful urgency there. Like we know what we want to achieve and we know what it's going to take to get there. And we're not going to do things that will ultimately slow us down. So it's a way of you know, moving deliberately but urgently at the same time. I'm really disappointed because we're coming to the end of the conversation. We've got one more to cover, which is diligence. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, look, it's uh, you know, the most uh, energetic and active member of the team needs to be the manager, right? That leader and being diligent. Now they're being, he or she is diligent about somewhat different things, right? They're not making sales calls anymore, but they are being diligent about finding coaching and development opportunities, planning with their teams and sending a clear message to their team that there is a certain expectation of how much energy uh, you need to approach with which you need to approach this job, right? And working hard at the details is what diligence looks like for sales leaders. This has been fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, Matt. Tell me this, now that you've written the book, I'd be really curious what you would whisper in the ear of the idiot Matt age 23 when you were setting out, maybe when you were setting out on your pathway to management. Yeah, yeah. I would say, I would probably say first, don't listen to all the coaching you're getting right now because it's completely wrong. (laughs) Totally wrong. Don't do what they're telling you to do. I would have told myself that, uh, you know, building trust and creating value for customers, there is a process there. There's, there's, a, there's a clear way that the best sellers go about differentiating, creating value and building trust with their customers. Here it is. I would have had my 23-year-old self read Spin or any Rackham's work first. And uh, because, you know, as a kind of a process thinker, I need to, I really needed to understand how do buyers go about making buying decisions and how can I be a value to them as they go through that process? Because it wasn't really until I understood that, that I became a consistently effective seller. So I wish I could go back in time. I probably would have saved myself about seven years of average performance if I just learned some of those lessons earlier. One book I would urge everyone in management and leadership to read or someone aspiring to do that is The Right Use of Power by Peter Block. Wonderful book. Okay, what other books would you recommend people read at the moment? I tend to be a a, a dabbler. I'll read multiple books all at once. And um, so on the business front, I've gone back and I've been reading Rethinking the Salesforce again. That's the DeVincentis and Rackham book. It's 20 years old. The reason I'm going, I'm going back to it is you know, they talked about the chasm that exists between buyers who just want ease of acquisition and a low price and those who want us to invest in the process, right? Why? Because they get value, buyers who get value out of the buying process. If you look at the very sort of SaaS-driven, low-friction sales methods that are being employed and that dominate LinkedIn, that's one world. But there's still a big camp of sellers who need to understand that there are are still buyers who want to engage. They may engage later, 
But rethinking the Salesforce does a good job of explaining like what was the root of all that? Like why did that happen? And they really they were they were well ahead of their time predicting that that you know that, that chasm would occur. Building Blocks of Sales Enablement by my friend Mike Kunkel is a good book. Um, if you're a, especially if you're a seller or sales leader, he has a very kind of a systematic way or takes a systems thinking approach to enabling sales organizations. And I think small and medium-sized companies would do well by um, reading that because it's one of the blind spots a lot of small organizations have. They think that sellers enable themselves. We don't. We need a lot of help there. And uh, and that book is uh, great. And um, those are the two right now business books that are on my desk. The other one I would strongly recommend anyone in management read is Multipliers by Liz Wiseman. Real eye-opener for anyone who's entering into management and really wants to embody these seven virtues. Just a fantastic read and practical and based on evidence. But she's not a thought leader. She's an action leader. So, Matt, how can people get hold of you? Uh, the easiest way is find me on LinkedIn, linkedin.com in Matt McDarby, two T's. You can also go to the company website, which is usr-llc.com, uh, United Sales Resources, USR. But LinkedIn is the place where I've got all my content linked, and that's the most efficient way. And please do visit the profile, send me a con- connection request or follow. And he's incredibly generous with uh, his time and his insights. So please do reach out. Excellent. Matt McDobby, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Great to speak with you again. I loved it. Me too. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, then please email me, marcus at laughs-alast.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Now, on the 9th of November, 2021, we're in, I'm launching something called the Black Pearl Strategic Alliances Mastermind Group. So if you believe that your success in the future will be determined by your ability to collaborate with others, customers, partners, even competitors, then please do get in touch because we are taking that part of the sales operation by storm. We're developing brand new tools and models, and we're identifying ways that you can accelerate and scale. One of my pals, Simon Severino, so you get a sense of just how potent this is, has with a company of eight people added five and a half thousand new customers over the course of 12 months with an average spend of between two and 21,000 pounds. And all of that was done through strategic alliances. So we're building on that kind of philosophy. So if you're interested in that, then do get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.